Okay, it's going now. Okay. Um, so, uh, a couple of months ago, as a community, we talked about reading The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Um, and then we met and talked about some of the themes of the book. And since that meeting, I, uh, um, there's been a concept that's been on my mind um, regarding heaven and our relationship with Jesus and our relationship with other people. Um, so I've been kind of looking further into how all those things, I guess, tie together. Um, I'm going to start, though, by praying so that I feel like I have a better hold on what I'm doing, and then we'll, we'll go from there. Jesus, I ask that you would give me peace today, that you would communicate your words uh, through me, that these concepts would, would be realized and understood, and that the way I present them would not be confusing or distracting. Um, we ask this all in your name. Amen. So in the story of The Great Divorce, it's a, uh, C.S. Lewis writes about, it's like he has this dream where he is in this great gray city, um, and it kind of resembles like a purgatory kind of a situation, and he takes this bus up into heaven with all of these other people, and when they show up in heaven, they are greeted by the, the people who are already like in heaven, and they come to meet all these people that have come up from hell, and uh, a lot of them are given the choice of whether or not they wanna stay in heaven or to go back to where they came from, and a lot of them choose to go back because they don't, they don't like the people that they're seeing in heaven. Like they have some conflict of, of interest with the people that they're meeting. And that to me was like, like a big deal because if we are, I guess it made me like evaluate like who would I see in heaven that I would be like, eh, I don't know if I want to be here. You know, like I mean, there, I think that that's a, I think that's the thing that we go through. Um, so I was thinking about I, how I was raised and my concept of salvation has kind of changed even within the last like couple months thinking about this because I was raised to believe that um, you say a, a sinner's prayer or um, you know there's some sort of conversion moment where you acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and then by doing so, you are um, accepting his gift of grace, and then you're good. Um, and I do still believe that, but I think that there's more to it than that. Um, and hopefully I can like elaborate and <laughs> communicate this idea well. But I think just as much as it's our interaction with Jesus and the concept of our relationship with Jesus, I think it is also our relationship with the other people that we come in contact with, even more specifically, probably the people that we don't like or that we don't get along with. So I'm going to dig into a couple different verses. A lot of them take place in Matthew. Um, so a lot of them are things that Jesus said before like the crucifixion and before the resurrection. So these are things that he was like talking about before like the deal was even sealed. Like this is concepts that um, he brought up while he was traveling. 
Um, in Matthew chapter 7, it's a series of parables. Um, the first one we talked about like a couple of weeks ago, I think, with the, there was the, um, like the ten virgins with their lamps, and then, there, so there's like a series of parables, and then there's this parable that's not actually like a parable. It's a, it's like he just starts talking about like the afterlife a little bit, but there's not, it's not really in parable form. Um, he says, uh, when he's talking about, when he's talking to them, he says, in Matthew 7, verse 21 through 23, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Simply calling me Lord will not be enough. Only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven will join me in heaven. At the end of time, on that day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons out of the possessed in your name? Did we not perform miracles in your name? But I will say to them, I never knew you, and now you must get away from me, evildoers. Like, and when I, when I read that, and when I, as I was growing up and I read that, I was like, that's like really intense. Like, so as a kid, my understanding was like, yeah, you could be a Christian and acknowledge Jesus as Lord, but like on judgment day, he could still say, yeah, but I don't even know you. And that to me was like really terrifying because what does that, like what does that mean? Like what does that mean for us as people who like proclaim that Jesus is Lord? Like what, that made me really analyze my life as far as, I don't, I don't know, that's just a lot to, to think on. Um, and this isn't the only passage in the Bible where, where that concept is said where like just acknowledging Jesus is Lord is not enough. Like, that, it comes up in other places, too. James talks about it. Um, he says that just knowing, knowing that Jesus is Lord isn't enough. Like, even the demons know that Jesus is Lord. Like, that doesn't, that doesn't change anything. Um, he talks a lot about, in James chapter 2, we, we hear a lot about the concept of faith without works. And I, and I wanted to kind of delve into that because I think they kind of go hand in hand. So in, uh, in James chapter 2, I'm going to read it. It's going to be really long, so I'm sorry. But I'm going to read a good percent. Yes? Yeah, parts of it are. <laughs> um, so in James chapter 2, he says, Remember his call and, lived by the, and live by the royal law found in Scripture. Love others as you love yourself. You'll be doing very well if you can get this down, but if you show favoritism, paying attention to those who can help you in some way, while ignoring those who need all the help, you'll be sinning and condemned by the law. For if a person could keep all the laws and yet break just one, it would be like breaking them all. So he's saying we're all held to the standard of the law, and if we break one, we've broken them all. Um, the same God who said, do not commit adultery, also says, do not murder. If you break either of these commands, you're a lawbreaker, no matter how you look at it. So live your life in such a way that acknowledges that one day you will be judged. But the law that judges also gives freedom. Although you can't expect to be shown mercy if you refuse to show mercy, but hear this, mercy always wins against judgment, thank God. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't make any sense for you to say you have faith 
and act in a way that denies that faith. Mere talk never gets you very far, and a commitment to Jesus only in words will not save you. If you see... Sorry. It would be like seeing a brother or sister without any clothes out in the cold and begging for food and saying, Shalom, friend, you should get inside where it's warm and eat something, but doing nothing about his needs, leaving him cold and alone in, on the street. What good would your words alone do? The same is true with faith. Without actions, faith is useless. By itself, it's as good as dead. I know what you're thinking. Okay, you have faith, and I have actions. Now let's see your faith without works, and I'll show you a faith that works. Do you think that just believing there's one God is going to get you anywhere? The demons believe that too, and it terrifies them. The fact is, faith has to show itself through works performed in faith. If you don't recognize that, then you're an empty soul. Wasn't our father Abraham made right with God by laying down his son Isaac on the altar? The faith in his heart was made known in his behavior. In fact, his commitment was perfected by his obedience. That's what the scripture means when it says, Abraham entrusted himself to God, and God credited him with righteousness. And in living a faithful life, earned Abraham the title of God's friend. Just like our father in the faith, we are made right with God through good works, not simply by what we believe or think. Even Rahab the prostitute was made right with God by hiding spies and aiding in their escape. Removing action from faith is like removing breath from a body. All you have left is a corpse. So <laughs> there's a lot to digest in that. Um, I, uh, before I talk about some of the concepts in there, I want to pause, like I always do, and go on to a different topic that will then like tie into this. It's just what I do. So I want to talk about for a minute the concept of heaven. So when Jesus was talking to these people, they had a very different concept of heaven than what we currently have. Like our idea of heaven as Christians is usually we die and we go somewhere peaceful for eternity and we live out our life in the clouds or whatever, whatever you would have it. Um, but that's not, that was not the concept of heaven at the time. The concept of heaven, uh, it was called Elom Haba and it, it means like the age to come. The idea was not that God was going to put us somewhere else. It was that he was going to redeem the creation that already was. So throughout the Bible, when people are asking about how do I get to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, how do I get into Elom Haba, like the next age to come, they're talking about not like how, where am I going when I'm dying. It's more how can I be a part of this next age that you're trying to bring in, like the age where people are being redeemed, where things are being perfected. It wasn't about going somewhere else. It was, how do I fix what's around me? Um, and that's why Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of heaven on earth, because that's the concept that they, that's how they understood heaven is earth perfected. So we have all these stories where he's talking about the kingdom of heaven, and people come up and ask, how can I be a part of it? One example is there is a rich man who asks, how can I be a part of Elom Haba? How can I get into this? 
And uh, Jesus responds by saying, you have to sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. Like, that's the only way you're going to be a part of the next age to come. Um, and the rich man doesn't want to do that. I don't blame him. If I was rich, I'd probably be selfish too. Um, but so, and then Jesus makes a statement that uh, also confused me as a child where he says, um, it'd be harder for a rich man to enter heaven than it would be for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle, um, which in my mind, it's like literally like trying to put a camel through like a needle and thread kind of situation. Um, but what the eye of the needle is referring to is actually a gate on the outside of the city that's really low. It's like the way for people to still get in without going through the main gate. Um, it's a, it's locked up and the only way to get in is like basically the camel would have to have everything taken off of it and then like crawl through it. Like that's what that's in reference to. So it's not like, Jesus is not saying it's impossible for a rich person to get into heaven, but it would take a lot of humility and removing of all the possessions and lowering, the, lowering themselves to get in. Um, back to faith without works is dead. I think the concept of heaven on earth and faith with works are tied together because you can't... Um, how can we really be a part of ushering in the kingdom of heaven if there's not any action involved in it? Does that make sense? I think when, when I hear faith without works is dead, um, my initial thought was that means like people who are Christians who are not living out their faith through works are dead to Jesus. I mean, that's kind of how I would naturally want to process that. But I don't think it's the matter of if you uh, if you are not moving forward through works that you are dead to Jesus. I don't think that's how it works, um, because I believe that the sacrifice of Jesus was a once for all. It doesn't it doesn't cut you off from God. There's nothing that we can do that will make us closer to God or farther from God. Like that's what Jesus' sacrifice did. But by us refusing to move to move forward in faith through action, we cut ourselves off from heaven now. We cut ourselves off from like bringing that light to other people. So it's not that we're dead to God, it's not that we are, it's, it's we're, we're refusing to move, we're refusing to, um, to go forward and I think that is a death in itself or it's, it's uselessness, it's, you know, we're, we're saved but we're, what good is that doing anyone? You know, what good is that? Is that helping us? Is that helping other people? Um, I'm going to read another story. This one's in Matthew 25, and it's talking about sheep and goats. And uh, I did some research on this through the good old Google, and... Hopefully the information I'm giving you is correct, but um, apparently sheep and goats were not so different from one another in this time. The sheep that we see today have, um, they're a lot like fluffier and 
I don't know if they've been genetically modified or if it's like through breeding or I don't know what, but they're, they're, different, they're different than they were at the time. So when they're talking about goats and sheep, like visually they're talking about things that look very similar to each other. The thing that's different between them and the way that they could tell like this is a sheep and this is a goat was through their behavior and through their personalities. So sheep have like a, like a group peaceful mentality and they follow the shepherd. Like they are, they, they tend to stick together, they tend to rely on each other and they rely on the shepherd to lead them to where they're supposed to be going. Goats, on the other hand, are destructive in nature. Like they, they ravage and they just, they mess everything up as much as they can. Um, they don't have like a group mentality. They do their own thing. They, um, so they're, the way that they're differentiating them, when he was talking about the story, it was, these are things that look the same, but they're behaving differently. So in Matthew 25, there's another story about the end of the world and Judgment Day. It says in Matthew 25, 31 through 46, when the Son of Man comes in all of his majesty, accompanied by throngs of heavenly messengers, his throne will be wondrous. All the nations will assemble before him and he will judge them, distinguishing them from one another as a shepherd isolates the sheep from the goats. He will say to some, the sheep at his right, at his right hand, and some, the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, to the sheep, Come here, you beloved, you people whom my father has blessed. Claim your inheritance. The kingdom is prepared for you from the beginning of creation. You shall be richly rewarded. For when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, sorry. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was alone as a stranger, and you welcomed me into your homes and into your lives. I was naked, and you gave me clothes to wear. I was sick, and you tended to my needs. I was in prison, and you comforted me. Even then, the righteous will not have achieved perfect understanding and will not recall these things. They will say, Master, when did we find you hungry and give you food? When did we find you thirsty and slake your thirst? When did we find you a stranger and welcome you in, or find you naked and clothe you? When did we find you sick and nurse you to health? When did we visit you when you were in prison? And he says, I'll tell you this. Whenever you saw a brother or sister hungry and cold, whatever you did to the least of these, so you did to me. Then he will turn to those on his left hand. Get away from me, you despised people from whom my father has cursed. Claim your inheritance, the pits of flaming hell where the devil and his minions suffer, for I was starving, and you left me with no food. When I was dry and thirsty, you left me to struggle with nothing to drink. When I was alone as a stranger, you turned away from me. When I was pitifully naked, you left me unclothed. When I was sick, you gave me no care. When I was in prison, you did not comfort me. And the unrighteous will say, Master, when did we see you hungry and thirsty? When did we see you friendless or homeless or excluded? When did we see you without clothes? When did we see you sick or in jail? When did we see you in distress and fail to respond? And Jesus responds, I will tell you this. Whenever you saw a brother hungry or cold, when you saw a sister weakened without friends, when you saw the least of these and ignored their suffering, so you ignored me. 
So these, the goats, will go off to everlasting punishment, but the beloved, the sheep, the righteous, will go into everlasting life. I think now my understanding of salvation, like I was saying at the beginning, when I was growing up, my concept of salvation was you had to have a relationship with God in order to get into heaven, and that's how it worked. And it, a lot of it was about when you die and everything that happens after you're dead. My concept of salvation is more focused on present time because I don't know what happens after I die. It's more focused on how does this giving me life in the present and how am I giving life to others in the present. I think that when God says the command is to love me with all your heart, mind, body, soul, and to love others if I have loved you, I think the two go hand in hand. And I think if we are just doing one thing or the other thing, we're not getting the whole picture. I think we are just as held accountable to our relationship with God as we are to the relationships we have around us with those we know and those we don't know, those we love and those we hate. I think that that is the higher standard that Jesus calls us to. Um, he says earlier that, so what if you love your friends? Like, even the wicked love their friends. Like, love your enemies. That's the real challenge. I think that's the hardest part of Christian faith. To me, it's not my relationship with Jesus because he did everything. I don't have to do anything. Like, he already made me right, so I am good in his image. The real challenge is every day where I have to face everyone else who's good in his image that I don't like. Like, that's the real challenge of the Christian faith, is, like, how do I move forward with that? Because that's hard. Like, I have no problem with God. Me and God are good. Like, he gets me, I get him, we're good. It's everyone else that I come in contact with that I say, yeah, God's good enough for me, and I'm good enough for God, but you and I aren't good, and we're not, we're not going to move forward. And even going further into uh, the concept of Every person we see, the least of these, those who are hungry, those who are naked, poor, all the oppressed people that we come into contact with that we do not help, like that is us being dead in spirit. Like that is us not moving forward in the faith. It's not that we are no longer good to God. It's that we are no longer a part of this kingdom of heaven on earth. We're no longer doing any good. Um, so I think it's, my belief is it's equal parts. Like we have to love God with all of our heart, mind, and soul. And in return, we have to love the people around us in that same way, or we're cutting ourselves out of the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to pray, and then we can talk more about this. Um, Jesus, I ask that you, would, that you would help us to realize the grace that you have extended to us, and that you would help us to realize the grace that you've extended to everyone. Um, I pray that you would continue to teach us how to love one another, and especially how to love those people that we do not find lovable. Um, I pray that you would continue to open our eyes every day to how much depth of peace and love you do have to bring to us presently in this current state that we live in. In your name, amen. So I guess like the next part is, what did this, um, you know, what was the main takeaway for you? Well, how does this relate to your life or how does this change the way you think about salvation or does this change your interaction with people? I guess that's kind of where I'm at. <laughs>
Yeah, I think my biggest hope would be, uh, I guess I'm struggling with my concept of salvation because I think it is more, I think there's that duality to it of it's as much me and God as it is me and everyone else. Um, so I guess I was hoping to impart that onto all of you. Here's my struggle, let's all think about it because I think that uh, at the beginning I was talking about and we, we read The Great Divorce as a Community and these people go into heaven and they see people that they don't like and they say, well, I don't want a part of this. So I guess my challenge is how many people am I meeting all the time that I would be uncomfortable spending eternity with and like what do I need to have changed in me in order to move forward with being a part of the kingdom of heaven? That's, that's what I believe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the first thing I wanted to talk about is um, I really like the book The Soul That Kills. And um, to add some context to the current sure. Sure. And in the book is talking about the fall of prophets. Yeah. So that's why the, the, the road looks like the truth. So we're talking about people that might look like they're acting in their soul or things like right. that as they fall. So it, it's kind of like saying I'm not perfect. You know, I'm yeah. The opposite. <laughs> yeah. 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 
Yeah. to have both of them together. 